In March of 1915, a Russian journalist reported that he had been witness to a most bizarre scene while at a small restaurant in Moscow. The Yar restaurant was a popular night spot, well known for its free-flowing alcohol and its wild music. But on this particular night, things were about to get a whole lot wilder. Late in the evening, a woman in her 70s entered the restaurant, accompanied by the most notorious man in all of Russia. The long-haired, bearded peasant with the piercing blue-gray eyes could not be mistaken. It was Grigory Rasputin, and he was already stinking drunk. He proceeded to get deeper into his cups and very quickly became the most annoying human being imaginable. He was the ultimate drunken cliché, singing along badly to the songs, interrupting other people's conversations with expletive-filled non-sequiturs, and unabashedly hitting on all the waitresses. But clearly he had come to the wrong place if he wanted to pull these kind of shenanigans. You see, the Yar was an establishment run by the Roma, the nomadic people better known as the Gypsies. We're told that Roma servers had a particularly low tolerance for handsy drunks in their establishments, and they weren't afraid to tell you so. After a few hours of enduring Rasputin's drunken assaults, the staff had had enough, and someone basically told him that he had to leave. Rasputin responded the exact way you would expect any terrible drunk to respond. He caused a scene. And what a scene it was. We're told that Rasputin climbed on top of a table and shouted, I can do anything! See this belt? It's Her Majesty's work. Then the drunk started furiously pelvic thrusting and screaming, I could make the old girl dance like this if I wished. At this point, the handful of people at the restaurant who hadn't noticed Rasputin were now very involved in what was going on. It's not every day that you see a wild-eyed peasant simulating sex with the Empress of Russia. Some of the onlookers started to wonder aloud if this crazy drunk was actually the famous Grigory Rasputin. I mean, it couldn't be. Could it? Well, Rasputin simply couldn't leave the crowd guessing, so he did the one thing that he knew would confirm his identity. He undid his pants and whipped out his famously massive penis. Some shrieked, many ran for the door, a few just stared in amazement, and the wise called the police. The plastered holy man was finally dragged from the establishment at 2.30 a.m. in the morning, all the while calling down vengeance on the men who would dare lay hands on the favorite of the Tsar. This little episode in Rasputin lore would go down as the Yar restaurant incident. And in many ways, this is the perfect Rasputin story, as it's got all the elements of the myth in full effect. We've got crazy drunkenness, lewd sexual behavior, his notably large sexual organ, and a not-so-subtle hint that he was having an affair with the Tsarina. But here's the thing. It's just a little bit too perfect. You see, most historians now agree that the Yar restaurant incident never actually happened. There was no police report ever made of this event, Rasputin's daughter insisted that her father would have never made the scene in Moscow at this point in his life, especially while escorting a 78-year-old woman, and perhaps most convincing, the police who were tasked with the 24-hour surveillance of the Siberian mystic would later report that Rasputin never went to the Yar restaurant while he visited Moscow in March of 1915. 
The story seems to have been entirely invented by unscrupulous tabloid journalists looking to fill the Russian newspaper pages with the always popular stories about the colorful mystic. The Russian press seemed to both hate Rasputin and thrive on tales of his exploits. It would kind of be like if Charlie Sheen was also a Catholic priest and was somehow advising the President of the United States. But as we all know, you can't believe everything you read in the tabloids. Was it actually true that he was having an affair with the Empress of Russia? Could it really be that his sexual organ measured an astonishing 13 inches? If we can't believe these stories about Rasputin, then how should we process the truly bizarre story of Rasputin's assassination? And who actually killed Rasputin anyway? This is our fake history. Episode number 29, Who Killed Rasputin? Part 2. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the show where we look at historical myths and try and determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This week we're finishing our examination of the legendary Russian mystic Grigory Rasputin. Now, this is part two of a two-part series, so if you haven't heard part one, you may want to go back and listen to that episode right now. In part one, I sketched out Rasputin's origins in the Siberian village of Pokrovskoya, his relationship, or lack thereof, with a sect known as the Klisti, and his introduction to the Russian royal family. I also spent some time exploring the theories related to Rasputin's seemingly miraculous healing powers. This week, we dive deeper into the strange life and even stranger death of Grigory Rasputin, and hopefully we'll be able to come to some conclusions about what has to be the oddest assassination ever undertaken. Now, once again, I'm going to preface these episodes with a parental advisory. As I mentioned in the last show, and as you probably gathered from this week's introduction, these episodes are going to be dealing with more sexual content than is typical for our fake history. To give you an idea, there's some pretty frank discussion of the male reproductive organ coming up. So if you're not comfortable with that or you don't want your kids absorbing that kind of content, then you may want to skip over this one. But for everyone else, let's get into it. When we last left off, Rasputin had wormed his way into the confidences of the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. This was mostly due to his amazing success healing the hemophilia of the young heir to the throne, Alexei. Before long, Rasputin went from being an intermittent guest at the royal palace to being a nearly constant presence at the imperial residences. We know from the letters between Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra that they both truly believed that the Siberian had mystical powers that had been bestowed on him by God. In their letters, they refer to Rasputin as only our friend, and they often discuss the advice that he'd been giving them. Now, this brings us to an important part of the Rasputin legend, 
and that is his role as imperial puppet master. Now, if you were to look only at the Russian newspapers during the years that Rasputin was attached to the royal family, you would get the impression that he had hypnotized the Tsar and Tsarina and was dictating imperial policy. There are no shortage of political cartoons of Rasputin playing the flute as the Tsar dances or sitting the royal couple on his knee like a couple of hapless toddlers. In the press, Rasputin was painted as a master manipulator who had essentially seized the reins of power and had become the de facto ruler of Russia. But how much of this was true? How much influence did Rasputin actually have over the royal family? Well, as you might imagine, the real situation is far more complex than the turn-of-the-century Russian tabloids would have their readers believe. In the early days, at least, Rasputin's influence over the royal couple was actually quite minimal. Initially, he doesn't even seem to have been particularly interested in politics or government policy at all. His discussions with the Tsarina seem to usually have been about matters of spirit and religion. He also comforted her when she was going through bouts of depression and talked about her children, specifically the heir Alexei. But as the years progressed, Grigori seems to have become more and more emboldened by his status as an imperial favorite. And after a while, he did begin meddling in the functioning of the Tsarist government. He loved to brag about his close relationship with the Tsar and the Tsarina, who he affectionately called Mama and Papa. Visitors to Rasputin's apartments in St. Petersburg would often report that he showed off the little handicrafts that the Tsarina had made for him, and he would beam that, quote, Mama made this for me. He also liked to talk about how much the Tsarina trusted him and how she always took his advice. In the early days, this seems to have been mostly the braggadocio of a peasant who was overly excited by his new proximity to power. But by the early 1910s, Rasputin had become sufficiently confident in his position at court that he did start trying to actively shape imperial policy. The first place that he started meddling was in the Orthodox Church. In 1909, he was able to lobby the Tsar to rescind the exile of a controversial Orthodox monk by the name of Iliador. At first, Iliador seemed to be a man after Rasputin's heart. He was a charismatic preacher who believed that a revolution was coming in Russia, but that it shouldn't be carried out by liberal Democrats or radical socialists. Instead, the revolution should be carried out by men of God in the name of the Tsar. He was also famous for being a hard partier who loved to drink and womanize. It's easy to see how he and Rasputin got along. Now, as you might imagine, he was also generally hated by the Orthodox establishment, who saw him both as a sinful vow-breaker and a dangerous demagogue. But Rasputin was able to convince the Tsar that Iliador was actually a loyal monarchist, who should be allowed to return to his church in Tsaritsyn and continue his ministry. Rasputin's goal seems to have been simply to have more like-minded men in the Orthodox establishment. The Tsar also seemed open to this as he himself had become somewhat disenchanted with the church leadership. You need to look no further than the royal couple's love of weird mystics to get a sense of their general feelings about organized religion. They were clearly open to shaking things up in the Russian Orthodox Church. But Rasputin's lobbying of the Tsar on behalf of Iliador was an important shift in his role at court. He was now a bit more than just a mystical court jester. He was influencing the decisions of the emperor, and people took notice. 
It shouldn't be a surprise then that it wasn't long after this first political move by Rasputin that the first sex scandal broke. For a long time, it had been a bit of an open secret in aristocratic circles that Rasputin was a bit of a libertine. He always seemed to enjoy drinking, and he most certainly enjoyed sex. When Rasputin first started to assert himself politically at court, there were already dozens of rumors about Rasputin's sexual escapades. He was known to go to bed with both high society women and sex workers, sometimes within hours of each other. He seemed to get a special thrill from bouncing between the well-bred aristocratic women and the women who were plying their trade on the streets of St. Petersburg. He was also accused by a nunnery outside of the city for conducting orgies with the sisters who were cloistered there. Now, before Rasputin started trying to influence the policies of the Tsar, this was just juicy gossip. But as soon as he started to make a play for power, then this became both a liability and a potential weapon that could be used by his enemies. Sure enough, in early 1911, a number of conspirators lured Rasputin to a party where they got him drunk to the point where he passed out. They then had a number of women, some of which were prostitutes, get naked and lay around him in what looked like the aftermath of a ridiculous orgy. Photos were taken and were later mailed to Rasputin in an attempt to blackmail him into leaving the city. Basically, he was told to cease contact with the royal family or else the pictures would be sent directly to the Tsar. But Rasputin was wily and took a big risk by actually getting in front of the story. Instead of waiting for his blackmailers to contact the Tsar, he made a meeting with Nicholas II himself and he told him the whole sorry tale. This ended up being a pretty clever play on the part of the mystic and probably saved his political career. The Tsar was clearly annoyed by the whole ordeal because it basically threw Rasputin's libertine lifestyle right in his face. Most historians now seem to believe that the Tsar and Tsarina were aware of Rasputin's crazy nightlife, but they simply chose to turn a blind eye because of what he was able to do for their son. But this scandal, which came complete with photographs, was simply too much for the Tsar to ignore. He needed to punish Rasputin, but he also didn't want the story to get any more traction than it already had. So Nicholas exiled Rasputin without formally exiling him by sending him on a religious pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Rasputin would be out of his hair and hopefully his wife would be saved the embarrassment of having one of her favorites caught up in a sex scandal. However, Rasputin's exile would not last long. By the summer of 1911, Rasputin would be back in the capital with a seemingly renewed purpose. If before he was just testing the waters of political influence, now he was ready to dive in head first. It was in the year that Rasputin returned from exile that he really started the political scheming that would come to define his reputation. 
he almost immediately started meddling once again in the affairs of the Orthodox Church. You see, he got himself involved in the process of the appointment of a new high church official. Now, without getting too deep in the Byzantine world of Orthodox Church politics, all you need to know is he basically wanted his favorites to get the top jobs at the expense of more august figures in the church. This obviously made him a number of enemies, who basically thought he had no business deciding anything about the church. Remember, Rasputin wasn't a bishop or even an ordained priest, and despite his famous nickname, The Mad Monk, he wasn't even a monk. He was just a really religious guy who claimed to have mystical powers. But this was not someone who was part of the church hierarchy. So for him to start messing with the appointments of bishops... Well, that was a bit of a scandal. His meddling in the church eventually brought him into conflict with his old ally and friend, Iliador. Despite the fact that Iliador had been saved from his exile by Rasputin, the monk now thought that the Siberian was taking the church in a direction that he did not believe in. So Iliador released a number of letters to the press that he had either stolen from Rasputin or Rasputin had given him back when they were buddies. These were affectionate letters from both the Tsarina and the princesses to Rasputin. Now, there was nothing in the letters that suggested a sexual relationship, but they were rather fawning. The Russian press was happy to fill in the blanks, and now there was a full-fledged rumor that Rasputin was sleeping with Alexandra and her daughters. So this brings us to another very important part of the Rasputin myth. Was Ra-Ra Rasputin really the lover of the Russian queen? Well, the answer to that question seems to be a hard no. There is no evidence that Rasputin and Alexandra ever had a sexual relationship. They were certainly close, and Alexandra was definitely influenced by Rasputin's advice. But all reports seem to show that the usually handsy Rasputin was always very deferential and quite respectful when it came to Alexandra. She was the Tsarina, after all. As I said earlier, he liked to call her Mama and often played the innocent around her. If anything, he was actively hiding his lecherous side when he was around Alexandra, not indulging in it. Also, Alexandra was completely devoted to her husband. The letters between Nicholas and Alexandra tell the tale of a very real love. Perhaps even a type of pathetic codependence, but now I'm editorializing. Basically, she wasn't the kind of woman who cheated on her husband, even with Russia's greatest love machine. As for the princesses, there were servants in the palace who were scandalized that Rasputin was permitted to visit the girls in their private rooms, which certainly helped fuel the rumors. But once again, there is no evidence that he ever made any sexual advances on the princesses. Once again, with the girls, he played the part of the innocent and seemed to be generally beloved by them. He was like a fun uncle and was never inappropriate around the girls. But while we're talking about Rasputin and sex, we need to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant is, of course his penis. One of the most enduring parts of the Rasputin legend is that he was tremendously well hung. We're told that his member measured some 13 inches in length and was equipped with a fortuitously placed wart that apparently brought his partner's untold levels of sexual pleasure. 
In many ways, the giant sexual organ makes sense in the context of the whole Rasputin myth. It's the root of his sexual power. It also serves as a handy explanation for how this greasy peasant with poor hygiene managed to seduce so many willing partners. After Rasputin's death, his penis became a bit of a holy relic. After the assassination, a rumor began to circulate that one of his assassins had cut it off and kept it as a trophy. Then a group of Rasputin devotees in France actually claimed to have preserved it in ice and apparently used it as a devotional object. To this day, there is still an object in a jar in a museum in St. Petersburg that is proudly displayed as the penis of Rasputin. But that penis in a jar was definitely never attached to Rasputin. In fact, many have speculated that it's an animal penis of some description, so it was probably never attached to a human being. We know this because Rasputin's penis was certainly present on his body during the autopsy after his death. It was also still attached when his body was later exhumed by a group of soldiers in the days following the fall of the monarchy in 1917. They apparently insisted on measuring the famous organ alongside a brick, but unfortunately, their measurements have been lost to history. Interestingly enough, the giant sexual organ may just be another myth in a life full of myths. We have only one written account about Rasputin's naked body, and it comes to us from a man named Filipov who was friendly with Rasputin in St. Petersburg and often went with him to the bathhouse. In 1917, he would testify that, quote, His body was exceptionally firm, not flabby, without the paunch and flaccid muscles usual at that age, and without the darkening color of the sexual organs, which, at a certain age, take on a dark or brown hue, end quote. Interestingly, Filipov makes no mention of the size of Rasputin's endowment. He talks about its color, but he doesn't mention its size, which kind of suggests that the size was not really worth mentioning. Filipov either purposefully left out the detail that the man had enormous genitals, or he simply didn't see anything that was noticeably above average. So the Rasputin penis is kind of like the Loch Ness monster of this story. It's been spotted by many and been the subject of many hoaxes, but ultimately... There is no good evidence that it actually ever existed. Rasputin was not sleeping with the Tsarina or her daughters. There's no denying that as the years wore on, his influence over them only seemed to increase. His place in the imperial household was totally solidified after the incident in 1912 when he managed to heal the young Alexei seemingly by telegram, an event that we discussed at length in the last episode. From that point onward, Alexandra would simply not hear any criticism of Rasputin in her presence. 
Many of her former friends and confidants found that they stopped receiving invitations to the palace if they dare speak ill of her Grigori. Feeling confident and insulated from his enemies, Rasputin began giving more advice about political appointments. Before long, Rasputin's favorites were finding themselves installed as members of the imperial cabinet. In 1914, a series of thoroughly inept prime ministers were appointed by Tsar Nicholas II. The Tsarina had actively influenced the Tsar into making these choices, and of course, Rasputin was actively influencing the Tsarina. So, Rasputin definitely had a noticeable influence on the government. But it wasn't like the Tsar just did whatever he said. First of all, Rasputin didn't really seem to have an end game with all of his political machinations. He simply tried to elevate men who were friendly to him and wouldn't try to oust him from the palace. He wasn't really pushing a clear agenda or a political ideology. He was just making sure that no one got a job that might threaten his cushy life as the Tsarina's favorite. It's important to note that the Tsar often made decisions that were contrary to Rasputin's advice. Most notably, his decision to declare war on Austria-Hungary and bring Russia into the First World War. Rasputin had actually been a big proponent for peace and counseled that only disaster would come from such a conflict. But the Tsar felt that Russian pride was at stake, and so he led his country into the most disastrous war the world had ever seen. Once the war was on, the Tsar decided that for the purposes of morale, he should be personally present at the front. Now, with the Tsar gone from the capital, and Rasputin seeming more influential than ever, the Russian press really began their full-scale attack on the Siberian mystic. It was during the war years that the political cartoons and dubious stories like the Yar restaurant incident became almost omnipresent in the news. Apparently, there was even a movie theater that displayed doctored photographs of Rasputin and the Tsarina in pornographic poses. Rasputin himself didn't help matters much as he continued to live the same licentious lifestyle that he always had. If anything, during the war, he started drinking even more heavily than he'd done previously, and his sexual liaisons with people of all social classes continued without interruption. As Russia began to suffer more and more defeats at the front, the opposition to the Tsarist regime, which had been building steadily for decades, really began to solidify. But the opposition to the monarchy was certainly not a united front. One of the reasons why the Tsarist state had survived as long as it did was because the anti-monarchist factions completely lacked cohesion. But in Rasputin, they had a common enemy. The Democrats hated his influence peddling, the churchmen hated his weird mystic beliefs, the socialists saw him as the ultimate example of aristocratic decadence, the pet freak of spoiled brats. But interestingly enough, it was none of these groups who ultimately decided to kill Grigory Rasputin. Both liberal Democrats and radical socialists believed that his undermining of the Tsarist regime would finally bring the revolution they had been craving. They didn't want him dead. They wanted him to just keep on making a mess of things. So ironically, Rasputin's assassins would turn out to be from the same high society circles that originally embraced the strange mystic as a winning party guest. 
His killers were monarchists who believed that killing Rasputin was the only way to save the Tsar from total destruction. That is, of course, if you believe their story. And man, oh man, there's a lot of reasons not to believe their story. The leader of the assassins was a young aristocrat named Felix Yusupov. Yusupov came from Russia's richest family, whose fortune was actually rumored to be the largest in the world. Basically, he was a Russian oligarch way before it was cool. But despite his blue blood, he was hardly the person you would expect to be Rasputin's killer. Yusupov lived a life that was almost as wild as Rasputin's. He was a well-known member of the aristocratic party set. He was gay and carried on affairs with dozens of young men. He also dabbled in cross-dressing and was super into the occult. In many ways, he's the kind of guy that Rasputin loved, a rich person who knew how to party. So, Yusupov was hardly the staunch moralist you might expect to be behind Rasputin's death. So, why did he want him dead? Well, some have speculated that they had had a romantic relationship that had soured, and Yusupov was out for revenge. But this is almost certainly a salacious rumor that's never been substantiated. Historian Joseph Furman thinks it's safe to assume that Yusupov actually did have a patriotic motivation for killing Rasputin. Yusupov was nothing if not an upper-class snob, and from his perspective, his country was being ruined by a dirty peasant. So Yusupov surrounded himself with a group of men with unimpeachable royalist credentials, including a grand duke, and proceeded to hatch a plan to kill Grigory Rasputin. First, Yusupov set about befriending Rasputin, and in the months leading up to the assassination, the two were often spotted together enjoying the nightlife of St. Petersburg, which had been renamed Petrograd after the outbreak of World War I so as to sound less German. These nighttime liaisons obviously were the things that gave rise to the rumor that the two men had a romantic relationship. Apparently, Rasputin even gave Yusupov one of his famous cutesy nicknames. To Rasputin, Felix Yusupov was always just little one. After a few months laying the groundwork, the trap was finally ready to be sprung. The plan was that they would lure Rasputin to Yusupov's home at the Moitka Palace on the pretense that Yusupov would arrange a romantic encounter between his wife and Rasputin. Once there, they would feed him poison and then they would dump the body in the Little Neva River and pray that the current took him out to the Gulf of Finland. If everything went smooth, the body would never be discovered and it would just seem as though Rasputin had disappeared. But according to Yusupov, things did not go according to plan. His version of events from the night of Rasputin's death is famously bizarre. So, let's hear that story. Midnight on December 17th, when Rasputin arrived at the Moitka Palace dressed in his favorite blue silk shirt. He was greeted at the door by Yusupov, 
who then led Rasputin to a basement room that had been dressed up as a dining room specifically for the occasion. Yusupov told Rasputin that his wife was simply seeing to some guests who had been over from a party and would be down in a little while. Meanwhile, the other conspirators were upstairs dutifully making the sounds of a party, which apparently included playing everyone's favorite party hit on the gramophone, Yankee Doodle. While they waited, Yusupov suggested that they drink some wine and enjoy some tasty cream-filled pastries. Little did Rasputin know that earlier in the day, one of the conspirators, a certain Dr. Lazavert, had dosed both the pastries and Rasputin's wine glass with enough cyanide to kill at least three men. At first, Rasputin refused to eat the pastries, saying that they were too sweet for him. But barely any time went by before he scarfed down a handful of the delicious little cream puffs. Then he started quaffing back the wine with his usual gusto. Yusupov watched Rasputin closely, expecting him to collapse at any second. But amazingly, the peasant seemed to be completely unaffected by the poison. He carried on drinking and making small talk and his usual dirty jokes. Occasionally, he would reach for his throat and mention that he had trouble swallowing, and his voice occasionally went low, and at one point he complained about having a slight stomach ache. But otherwise, he felt good and proceeded to get annoyingly drunk. Yusupov was stunned, but he had no choice but to keep the charade going and hope the poison eventually kicked in. Eventually, Rasputin spotted a guitar in the corner of the room and suggested that Yusupov should play something cheerful. Feeling trapped, Yusupov did as he was asked and started playing Rasputin song after song in what must have been the most awkward acoustic set in history. I mean, really, what song do you play to a man who you just unsuccessfully poisoned? Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what your playlist is. I'm curious. After nearly two hours of this, Yusupov said he needed to go check on his wife and scurried upstairs to conference with the other conspirators. They were completely dumbfounded that Rasputin wasn't dead. One of the conspirators suggested that they just let him go and try again another time. But this was quickly dismissed as a bad idea. Because if the mystic ended up dying in his sleep back at his apartment, an autopsy would surely find the poison in his system and it wouldn't be too long before authorities came sniffing around the Moitka Palace. No, they needed to settle this once and for all. And so, one of the conspirators handed Yusupov a browning revolver and told him to go finish what he had started. Yusupov entered the basement and found a drowsy Rasputin complaining of stomach pain. But then he had another glass of wine, and he cheered right up and was ready to continue the evening, he even started wandering around the room and admiring one of the ornate crucifixes that Yusupov had displayed on the wall. Yusupov knew that now was the time to act. So he said, Grigori, you best say a prayer in front of that crucifix. Rasputin turned around and faced Yusupov, an expression of fear spreading over his face. With that, Yusupov fired a single bullet into the chest of Grigori Rasputin. The mystic collapsed on his back and started convulsing on Yusupov's bearskin rug. At the sound of the shot, the other conspirators ran into the room and watched as Rasputin bled. Apparently, two of the conspirators actually dragged Rasputin's body onto the old cold stone floor to keep his blood from staining Yusupov's fancy bearskin. The men then left the body and headed upstairs to have a calming drink and start the next phase of the plan. 
This required the men to make a stop at Rasputin's apartment and pretend to go in wearing Rasputin's trademark fur coat. This was done so they could make it look to any onlookers that Rasputin had drunkenly returned home after visiting the Moitka. But after completing this little ruse and returning to the palace, Yusupov all of a sudden became overwhelmed with a desire to see the body again. So he went back down to the basement to have one last look. There he found Rasputin in the same position that he left him. But just then, Yusupov was overcome by an intense feeling of rage, and he grabbed the body and started shaking it. Just then, one of Rasputin's eyes opened, quickly followed by the other. The eyes fixed Yusupov with a hateful glare, and amazingly, the man who just seconds ago had appeared dead was on his feet. He started growling Yusupov's name, Felix! Felix! and charged at him. The back-from-the-dead Rasputin managed to grab one of Yusupov's epaulets and tore it from his jacket. The aristocrats screamed, and soon the other conspirators came running. In the time that it took them to reach the basement, the demonically reanimated Rasputin had made it out a side door and was now outside the palace and was running through the courtyard. The conspirators gave chase and unloaded two more shots that missed Rasputin as he frantically ran for the gate. Then finally, a third shot hit Rasputin in the back and he fell to the ground. A fourth shot was then unloaded into his forehead and the mystic did not move again. After the body was carried back into the palace, the now shaking and half-insane Yusupov insisted on beating the corpse with a dumbbell. He eventually had to be pulled off by the other conspirators and then promptly fainted. The conscious conspirators then tied up the corpse and wrapped him in a blue rug. They then threw the body in the back of their car and drove to the Great Petrovsky Bridge, which went over the Little Neva River. The men then carried the body along the bridge until they reached a spot overlooking a crack in the ice, and there they dumped him in. It was finally done. However, legend would have it that Rasputin was still alive when he hit the water. Rumors would circulate that water was found in his lungs, which would have suggested that he was still breathing when he hit the river. It was also said that the mystic had managed to struggle free from his ropes and with his last burst of energy made the sign of the cross. We're told that when he was found, his hands were raised in the final position of that holy gesture. And so ended the life of Grigori Rasputin. Now, that is an amazing story, but how much of it can we really believe? I mean, it does seem just to be way too crazy to actually be true. Now, that account comes from Yusupov himself, and he was actually quite consistent in the tellings of the story over the years. 
He even published his account in a famous memoir that was released in 1927. Now, only one of the other conspirators ever went on record about the assassination. A certain Vladimir Parishkovich, the man credited with firing the fatal shot. Now, there were a few inconsistencies between his version of events and Yusupov's. Was it a rug they wrapped him in or was it a curtain? But for the most part, he corroborated Yusupov's version of events. So our two eyewitnesses both swear that Rasputin really did seem to survive both a poisoning and a gunshot wound. But both of these men had a vested interest in portraying Rasputin in the most demonic light possible. Yusupov was a total narcissist whose willingness to cash in on his famous murder should give us at least a moment of pause. He would later make a lot of hay out of this little episode, so the more dramatic he could make the story, the better. So we should ask how well his version of events aligns with what Rasputin's autopsy report tells us about his death. So, right off the bat, the autopsy report helps us dispel two of the most enduring Rasputin myths. The first is the story that Rasputin had water in his lungs and therefore was still breathing when he hit the river. This is completely untrue. There was no water in Rasputin's lungs. Now, of course, there's a conspiracy theory that all reports of the lung water were purposefully suppressed by the Tsarina. You see, if Rasputin died of drowning, then that would mean he wasn't a saint. This is usually credited to a belief in the Orthodox faith that saints can't die by drowning. Except this actually isn't an Orthodox belief. There's nothing in the Orthodox faith that says you can't be a saint if you drown. So there's no reason why the Tsarina would ever have to cover it up. This is just a very weird, very wrong theory. Now, we can also say with certainty that Rasputin did not free his arms from his restraints once he was in the river. He was still all tied up when they dragged him from the ice. But notably, both of those little myths were not part of Yusupov's story. They were things that were invented after the fact. Now, the one detail from the autopsy report that does seem to challenge Yusupov's account was that there was no cyanide found in Rasputin's system. So, we can draw a few different conclusions from this. Either A, the person who conducted the autopsy overlooked something because they didn't think they needed to look for poison in a man full of bullet holes. B, the cyanide used by the conspirators was old and lost its potency. C, the sugar in the pastries managed to neutralize the cyanide, which seems crazy, but apparently that's a thing that can happen. Or D, Rasputin was not poisoned at all, and the cyanide-laced pastries were a fiction invented by the conspirators in order to cast Rasputin as some kind of supernatural villain. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but many have speculated that the poisoning story was invented by Yusupov and Parishkovich simply to make the story juicier. You gotta remember, these guys were on the hook for murder in the first degree, so perhaps the elaborate story was cooked up to help them justify their crime. By playing into the myth of Rasputin as having dark satanic powers, they were able to more effectively cast themselves as the noble defenders of Russia. But 
as I said, this is only speculation. What is certain is that there was no cyanide mentioned in the autopsy report. Finally, it can be said with quite a bit of confidence that a bullet to the head is what killed Grigory Rasputin. And the injuries that he sustained from the other two bullets in the chest would have certainly killed him eventually had the final bullet not been fired. But aside from the endlessly fascinating question of how Rasputin was killed, we need to finally ask the question that gives this whole series its name. Who killed Rasputin? Well, on the one hand, the answer seems obvious. It was Felix Yusupov and his band of conspirators. But perhaps there was someone else at the Moitka Palace that night. Someone who had been secretly orchestrating the entire assassination. A British spy. Yes, there is reason to believe that the British Secret Intelligence Service may have had a hand in the assassination of Grigory Rasputin. But what was their motive? Why would the British want Rasputin dead? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Rasputin had counseled the Tsar against getting involved in World War I. This gained him the reputation of being part of a faction who wanted Russia to conclude a separate peace with Germany. This would take them out of the war early. Now, this wasn't actually true, as Rasputin seems to have believed that once Russia had declared war, they should stay engaged until they achieved victory. However, it's possible that the British may have believed that Rasputin was pressuring the Tsar to drop out of the war. If Russia left the war early, that could have spelt disaster for her ally, Great Britain. They may have truly believed that if Rasputin was dead, then Russia kept fighting. So, the Brits definitely had a motive. We also know that the conspirator Vladimir Perishkovich had met one Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Hoare, a British Secret Serviceman, in the days leading up to the assassination and almost certainly told him of the plot. So even if the British didn't plan the killing, they had certainly been kept abreast of the plan by a key conspirator. The men on Hoare's staff in Petrograd, John Scale, Stephen Alley, and Oswald Rayner, may have also played a key role in the assassination. For instance, a very suggestive letter was sent from Alley to Scale in the days after the assassination. It read, quote, Although matters have not proceeded entirely to plan, our objective has clearly been achieved. Reaction to the demise of dark forces has been well received, although a few awkward questions have already been asked about wider involvement. End quote. Now, in this letter, the codename Dark Forces is used to refer to Rasputin. And by the way, guys, I mean, Dark Forces, what an amazing nickname. Like, I only wish in my life I could be cool enough to get the nickname Dark Forces from the British Intelligence Service. Anyway, this letter seems to suggest that his death was their objective. The author of the letter also seems concerned that some in Petrograd were starting to get wise to potential British involvement. Now, on its own, this little letter doesn't really prove anything, but my God, is it tantalizing. On top of that, the other British spy in the mix, a man by the name of Oswald Rayner, was actually old college buddies with Yusupov. 
They had attended the prestigious Oxford University at the same time and had remained friends ever since. Rayner was also a frequent guest at Yusupov's home, so there's considerable reason to believe that he may have also been in on the plot. In fact, a chauffeur connected to Yusupov always swore that the real assassin had been a British lawyer, and Rayner had been trained as a barrister. It's also interesting to note that Oswald Rayner also helped Yusupov create the English translation of his memoir about killing Rasputin. But perhaps the best nugget about Rayner's involvement in the death of Rasputin actually became a treasured piece of family lore. Some of Rayner's descendants would later claim that Oswald had been in the Moika Palace on that fateful night and may have even fired the last fatal shot. Some of his family members even claim that he used to wear a ring inset with a bullet that was said to have passed through Grigory Rasputin. Apparently, Yusupov also wore a ring that fit the same description. Now, I love this story, but... Right now, there still isn't enough evidence to say anything definitive about British involvement. There's just some things that are so suggestive. Now, a couple of years ago, the British intelligence service MI6 actually teased that they were going to make public a number of documents about the Rasputin assassinations. But before they could, Vladimir Putin raised a stink. He was apparently enraged that the British would ever dare kill a Russian citizen on Russian soil, no less, even if it happened 100 years and two revolutions ago. So the agency thought better of it and the documents remain classified to this day. But I'm holding out hope that one day we'll get to see those juicy files. So in the end, It's kind of appropriate that the Rasputin legend has been a story that just refuses to die. He's easily one of the most mythical people to have lived in the 20th century. Now, as we learn more about Rasputin's times, many of the myths do fall away. He becomes less of a boogeyman and more of a real person. But despite that, there are still a number of things about the guy that were deeply mysterious. And if I ever get worried that the myth of Rasputin is starting to fade away, I console myself by remembering that somewhere in Russia, there's a 13-inch penis in a jar bravely keeping that myth alive. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will take one last look at the Romanovs and do a one-off episode on Anastasia and the myths associated with her. Uh, In the meantime, uh, I'd like to thank my man Frank Fiorentino for making some really cool art this week for the cover of this episode. Now, here's a cool story. Bonus myth, everyone. Uh, Frank told me that when he created this particular picture of Rasputin, uh, at first he couldn't really get in the mood. So he sat down, he found a playlist of turn of the century Russian music, put it on and tried to get inspired, but nothing was coming. And then just then a cloud went over the sun and on his page, a shadow was cast and the outline of Rasputin's profile was just revealed to him on the piece of paper. And then he completed the drawing in like 30 seconds or so he says. 
that's incredible. That's incredible. Like, I just love the idea that Rasputin is haunting this podcast or maybe just haunting Frank's apartment. I don't know. But uh, that's just way too cool. It was way too cool a story not to share with you guys. So check out that art. It's easily the creepiest, darkest art we've uh, we've had on the podcast yet. And I just love that it comes with this weird origin myth. Um, so as always, big thanks to my man Frank Fiorentino for creating these images. But uh, that one's just double cool. Um, before we go this week, I'd also like to... Uh, suggest to you another podcast from the Dark Myths Collective. This one is called The Baddest Ass. Anyone that's a fan of our fake history knows that that's like one of my favorite things to say. Like it comes up all the time. I'm always saying things are badass. Well, these gentlemen have taken it to a new level. Every episode, they pit two different historical figures against one another, and they debate which one of them was, in fact, the baddest ass. Uh, If you like your history with a a good dose of comedy and uh, ridiculousness and uh, you enjoy the banter between the hosts, um, I think you you might enjoy that podcast. So go to darkmyths.org and uh, check out The Baddest Ass. Uh, If you're looking for also more shows to listen to, you can hear more of me if you go to OurFakeHistory.com and click the Buy Extra Episodes button. That'll take you to Bandcamp where you can download some of the extra shows. I know a lot of you have already done it, but if you want to hear more, there's a couple there. You can also donate to the podcast, so head to OurFakeHistory.com and click on the Donate to OFH button, and that will take you to PayPal, where you can drop a couple of shekels in the jar. Um, Finally, uh, if you want to support us, the easiest way is to go to iTunes, where you can rate or review the show. It really helps the show get more visible, so please head over there and write a review. Thanks again to everyone that's been donating. Uh, You guys rule. It's it's such a beautiful, wonderful, nice thing. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone that's been buying the extra episodes. I hope you like them. Uh, I think they they stand up to all the other stuff I do. If you like the show, you'll like the extra episodes. Um, And uh, thanks to everyone that writes reviews. Uh, You guys are always really sweet and uh, it helps, so I really appreciate that. Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at ourfakehistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter at ourfakehistory, uh, or you can like the Facebook page. You can go to Facebook slash ourfakehistory, and you can follow along there. I'm always teasing news things about the episode there, uh, posting things. Uh, we've got a good little community going on that Facebook page, so uh, uh, join us. Uh, As always, the theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check them out at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. And a bunch of you keep on asking me, like, who's that band that does the music? And I'm like, oh, you're not listening to the end, are you? That's okay. I don't mind. I'll tell you all day long that it is Dirty Church. So check them out. All the other music that you've heard on this show is written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. (laughs) 